Dotnet Rocks episode 818 with guest Alex Robson. Recorded live Thursday, October 25th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. This is what happens when you give the locals too much Basil Hayden's. <laughs> we are in bourbon country. And we went shopping today. We went to the liquor barn and saw the Wall O Bourbon. You guys been to the liquor barn? Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's a barn. How can you live down here and not be lushes? I don't know. I don't understand. This yes. is because you're not. Yeah. This is the center of the universe for bourbon. Louisville, Kentucky. And all we did was we went through the wall and anything we didn't recognize, that's what we wanted. Right. Yeah. It lasts a good long time. Hey, uh, we're going to introduce Alex in just a minute, but first we have some business to take care of with Better No Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? I went trolling on CodePlex minutes ago. Oh. And I found a, I came across something I had seen before. It's the amazing tag cloud control. And it's amazing? It's, oh, it's amazing. And the it, tag cloud. Okay. You know what a tag cloud is. I know what a tag is. cloud yeah. is. We use a tag cloud on the site. Absolutely. Okay. So this is an ASP.NET control written in C Sharp that generates a tag cloud. Tagcloud.codeplex.com. Nice. It's simple, simple. and uh, apparently people like it. So it's cloudy and it's taggy. It's cloudy and taggy. <laughs> and it's what I could find quickly. Nice. So know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed it. Well, in honor of our guest, what else could I do? I grabbed a comment off of show 803. Alex Robson programs a polyglot. And the comment comes from Stephen Proctor, who says, Great episode again. In the vein of polyglot programmers and exposure to the ideas in those arenas, I would love to hear you discuss some of the things coming from the closure world a bit, especially since it has an implementation not only on the JVM, but also a view of closure CLR. One of the things that is interesting is the database Datomic. I think that would be a show in and of itself, as it is a database that does not ever update information. Ever update information but stores the data as facts in the database along with a timestamp of those facts allowing a complete history persisted in the database. So never an update, we just keep adding new records. New rows all the time. I mean, yep. and that's actually a pattern you can do with any relational database, right? Yep. Anything I've done that, it. Yeah, many times. Transactional databases, you always insert. You right. never update. It's right. just the way to work. But it's interesting that there's a database specific to that. And Stephen, I would like to point out to you that we have talked about closure before. If you jump back a bit, show 678, which is where we talked to Uncle Bob about closure at NDC. Although, admittedly, I'm pretty sure we were half in the bag when we, we were that show. No, we were in the bag. It was punchy, though. We it were at the end of the day. day. Now, I, th I think we were into the beer at that point, or at least maybe Bob was. But we did talk maybe. about closure, both the JVM version and the .NET version. So, that we have had that part of the conversation. But I, I think it's interesting that a database doesn't update. Is essentially, do away with the database part. Just write the log file. Nice. It's, it's you like just that? Just a big, fat, smart yeah, log file a log with file. a querying tool built in. Absolutely. I, I mean, clearly, I'll look at the atomic <laughs> to see if this, this makes sense as a show. Yeah. And I love other languages. This is why we're talking to Alex. 
dogs in the first place. Absolutely. So that well worth looking into. And Stephen, thank you very much for your comment. Uh, I've uh, indicated a couple of things to you, and we'll talk to Alex about the rest. And so a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 300 courses taught by experts and MVPs and people that appear on our show, and they release about 8 to 10 new courses every month. Uh, and topics cover everything on the Microsoft stack, plus Java, Android, HTML, JavaScript, uh, just about anything technology-wise you can Kim think Trip of. Kim Tripp and Paul Randall are a whole SQL series now. Are they really? Yeah, they're into it. Oh, my God. The first few published. It's awesome. And uh, Node.js, Azure, you name it, it's up there. Speaking of polyglot, mm -hmm. lots of stuff. So, subscription plans start at just $29 a month, Pluralsight.com. A proud sponsor of .NET Rocks. Indeed. And with that, let us introduce and give a big round of applause to our guest, Alex Robson. Alex was on the show before talking about polyglot programming, but uh, you're kicking it up a notch now. You're actually talking about the principled polyglot programmer, which is uh, you've, you're, you're creating some some ideas about rules and protocols about what to, what makes a good polyglot programmer. Sure, absolutely. Well, I don't want to put a lot of uh, encouragement out there for people to irresponsibly just jump into things. And, and when you say irresponsible, you mean JavaScript. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> that and, and VB, of course. Known by Sorry. all the dev managers that's encouraging their developers to fragment the architecture, right? Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. Right. Is it is it really? I mean, I admit there are fragmented architectures, but that's not because of the languages. I've seen it done wrong. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you've seen it done <laughs> wrong. So I guess that's a great point. Where where will you go wrong with polyglot programming? Like, what what's the what's the evil thing? What shouldn't you do? Um, I, I can speak from my own experience. I I. I like the raven, I am drawn to the new shiny all the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so you can get really excited about the bullet points and the features of a specific language and just think, I want to resolve this problem using that. Right. Right. Yeah. And if it if there's not value coming out of that uh, exercise, mm -hmm. it's something to be avoided. Well, isn't that kind of what people do? They see a new language and they say, oh, well, you know, I was successful writing this code in this language. Why don't I, as an exercise, maybe, try to do the same thing in this new language? And that turns out to be a colossal waste of time. Well, if you do it on your own time, it's not. Yeah. Right? But if you do it on the customer's time, whether that's internal or external, that can be harmful, right? Mm -hmm. that, where's the value? Right, uh, and if you're, you have to be careful because if you're taking something that was working and abandoning it in, for favor of the new thing written yeah. in a new language, um, what happens when you get bored with that and move on? Who's going to maintain it? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's there's sort of this responsibility that also comes along with um, venturing out past mm -hmm. the comfort zone. You can also so see, there's a real challenge in assessing: Am I struggling to solve this problem with this new language because I don't understand the language, or because this language is not well suited to that problem? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and factors it, in. Yeah. I mean, is there any? How do you tell? Well, you could do what I did and embark on a safari into the depths of uh, .NET. Right. Mm -hmm. um, when when Node first came out, um, I took a look at it. Some of my coworkers were really excited. 
I, I had done JavaScript, but probably still had maybe a bad taste in my mouth from way back when Ajax was like a new thing. Right. I'd done enough JavaScript at that point to know I didn't love it. Um, you know, Crockford's book, The Good Parts, wasn't out yet to help yeah. me there. Mm-hmm. So you weren't all, you were using some of the bad parts. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, I knew what was at the core of, of Node. Mm-hmm. I'd seen Ryan give a talk about how he built this thing from the ground up. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, it's just an event loop. .NET could do event loops. Sure. Mm-hmm. .NET could do multiple event loops in a single process because it's multi-threaded. Yeah. Right. I'm going to do that. And so, um, actually, Worked, spent several months of mine and a few other folks' time uh, actually trying to build something that could compete, right? With no. Right, right. Yeah. With in C no. sharp. Yeah, in C sharp. How'd it go? It started to hurt a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, we, we didn't even get to one for one feature completion or anything like that. It was basically we had a very simple test case. Uh, we were using Apache Bench to just hammer the living daylights out of an HTTP endpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what we wanted to be able to do was show that on the, the C-sharp, on the .NET side, that we could get similar performance characteristics. Mm. We could not. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah, we, we discovered some things in the depths of, uh, honestly, it, it seemed like it went beyond just .NET, right into the networking layer. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, I had to really take a step back from it and say, well, is this what Microsoft's trying to accomplish with .NET, right? Could it be that I'm actually trying to stretch a tool set past what sure. the uh, intention was? You, you have fitted a steering wheel onto a horse. Exactly. Well so, done. So that's the so that's the don't do, and maybe the supplication of that. The, the the thing to do is instead look for what does this language platform, whatever, what does this technology really excel at? What does it do better than anything else? Mm-hmm. And learn that. And so now you have learned the the strong pieces of all these technologies. The question becomes, how do we get these things talking to each other? Sure. Yeah, um, that kind of gets you to, and you have three ways that you can go, right? You could take TCP or UDP and write your own protocol on top of that. That sounds like tons of fun. Because most languages have sockets support. There be dragons. There be dragons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily recommend that unless you're just hardcore and you, you love doing this sort of thing. Cause you're going to have to do it in every language, right? right? You wouldn't just write the protocol for C sharp. You'd write it for everything else C sharp needs to talk to. Right. Or you could go the, uh, route that Amazon went, at least in the days of yore when, uh, was it Brazos, I think, sent out the memo and said, everything will be HTTP or else, right? Mm, right. Find another job, right? That's the way they went. And there's been a lot of value for them in that. Or you could take a messaging route and use some of the messaging protocols that are available out there and not have to take on the um, the same level of effort that's required to build out these HTTP endpoints. I mean, you're basically just talking about web services everywhere. Right? Sure. I mean, that's more or less what he did with the HTTP thing. Mm-hmm. What's the downside to that? I mean, it's it's a pretty common protocol. The, the downside in my experience has been when you start getting into things where latency really matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what most folks, well, I know you know probably better than I do, that latency is additive, right? And you think, oh, two milliseconds, it's not a big deal. Well, mm-hmm. if it could have been one millisecond, you're adding that millisecond onto every single transaction sure. that follows after it in the queue. So you get into this additive runaway effect where things look great when you just run the hundred transactions through as the test and mm-hmm. go, yeah, this was amazing. And then, you know, 
uh, customers decide to do what you were describing earlier, open up the six browser tabs and try the transaction yeah. in all the different customers places. Customers are far Saturday. weirder than test cases. Yeah. yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for ones suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I mean, it strikes me that HTTP struggles when the frequency gets really, really high and you're latency sensitive. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I think HTTP is not good at is really large packages. Sure. Like when, yeah. you, when you want to haul around multi-megabytes. And long-standing connections. Yeah. That, there's, yeah. It's not a good protocol. So mm-hmm. these uh, messaging protocols, are they implemented across the board in all of your favorite languages? Just um, about. Uh, that's, Are there any that, exceptions? COBOL probably yeah. doesn't yeah. have adapters. <laughs> Nothing speaking ADA anymore. I, Are you serious? Like everybody supports these? Not not everybody. I, I would say that, um, for example, Rabbit, uh, they have a team of highly skilled polyglot developers plus the open source community. And this is a queue. Yeah, this, yeah. Is a, this is a message queuing protocol that has a broker. Got right? it. So zero MQ as an alternative, uh, which also has adapters for you know probably fifteen to twenty different languages, the wow. popular ones, hmm. wow. is broker less. Mm-hmm. It's very very fast. In some cases, they've shown that using zero can be faster than just sending raw TCP/IP packets, which seems which seems wrong. Wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind yeah. Of impossible, but okay. It's it's very very fast. Uh, you you have multiple transports available to you when you use zero. You can even do inter inter process communication. Which mm-hmm. is when you use zero, what do you mean? Zero, zero MQ. MQ. Mm-hmm. Oh, zero MQ. I'm yep. sorry. Yeah. But the downside is when you don't have a broker, there's nothing gathering the messages for you. There is no middleman, which mm-hmm. might sound positive. But what happens when um, the network gets flaky? Mm-hmm. Right, service goes down. Mm-hmm. The service, well, the service goes down. The intended recipient's not there anymore, mm-hmm. so nobody's there to pick up the message in a brokerless system. Unless you've taken it upon yourself to do message persistence, which is another sticky problem. Right. Yeah. The message just doesn't get to where it's going. Yeah. With a broker, you can have that message sitting in a queue, right? And as the service spins back up, somebody knows to check that queue for messages and begin mm. processing again. One of the big thing there is either you. <laughs> Create the broker yourself at every endpoint, mm. or you use a broker service so that you don't have to create it and then count, focus on making one thing reliable instead of everything reliable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's sort of a mentality, but it is not as fast as brokerless. It's not as fast. Yeah, there's there's overhead to things like message persistence, right? If you've got to F-sync to disk at some point. Um, That's milliseconds. 
sure. It is, but again, going back to the latency thing, it yeah. becomes additive. Yeah. And uh, things that you don't expect to bite you because you think, oh, milliseconds is small, we're yeah. good. Yeah. Um, when you start dealing with large volumes or there, there are certain lines of businesses that I've worked in where you don't get a nice steady volume over the 20, 24 or even eight hours. You get all the volume within an hour window. And oh, by the way, you have 30 to 45 minutes to process all of it because right. the person who's waiting for the processed version of all this data has a cutoff point, right? For example, the yeah. Fed, they don't mess around. If you're late, <laughs> it's like, okay, you can try them again tomorrow. Hope yeah. it wasn't a Friday. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So you rattled off, I don't know, three or four or five languages um, during your presentation that here and uh, started to touch on a few of the strengths of each of these things. Like Erlang does really good pattern matching, you know, for example, um, uh, F sharp maybe works great with, uh, you know, large sets of data in an asynchronous way. Um, can we go through a list of some of these so that we can at least have some talking points on, sure. uh, on what the strengths of these languages I can are? I give you my opinion. Sure, right? sure. Uh, in my experience, line of business applications make a lot of sense in C Sharp, back mm -hmm. office stuff. Yep. Um, also, if you're doing integration between, especially in the Microsoft world, a lot of times there's already APIs available to mm -hmm. you in C Sharp. Mm -hmm. Don't turn your back on that in favor of, well, Node's really cool or Erlang's nice. or yeah. you're, you, you will spend much more time, lose hours of sleep, make your ops people angry, yeah. trying to build all this stuff, right? So um, I, I feel like the .NET world is very good at that. And I, I've, my opinion or my understanding of the history behind it is that's kind of what Microsoft was aiming at mm -hmm. when yep. they built this. It was they were trying to empower the business application developer. And yep. I think they've done a very good job of that. Yep. But as, you know, things get more and more interconnected and we try to digitize more and more things, you get all these wonky edge cases. You have uh, lines of business that occasionally have very extreme technical requirements like some of the ones I mentioned earlier. Mm. And that's where you start to bump up against the edges of what .NET might be able to do for you out of the box. It, I mean, it tends to be computationally intensive stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, C Sharp's plenty smart, but when you really get to velocity or very complex processing, mm -hmm. that's not its focus. It's it's the I feel like it's the ultimate general purpose language in that it's very generalized mm -hmm. and it doesn't work well at the edges. Although, and I think you pointed this out in your own discussion, it really does Lambda's nice. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Right. And yeah, just yeah. The, the way of, in my mind, that that ability to represent a complex language idea well, mm -hmm. that you can see it clearly, seems to be a distinct characteristic. I understand Java sure. just got la lambdas. Yeah. yeah. Does anybody know? Well, it's not, it, it doesn't just stop there. I mean, they're, yeah. they're always evolving. I mean, how many people want to go home and start doing things with a weight? Async and await. Yes. yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah. After Carl's People demo. People hear them raising hands. So yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with raising your hand on a radio show? I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, you know, a chunk of folks here, because yeah. Carl does such a great demo of async await. I think he does the best job I've seen of making it. Uh, you can do this. Yeah. It's not that complicated, and it really does seem to prove things in a subtle way, but mm -hmm. powerful. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it takes the headache out of it, right? Right. It just makes it simple. Sure does. So... Still wrestling with, because I mean, the three languages you really hit on when talking about this polyglot approach were JavaScript, C Sharp, Erlang. Mm -hmm. Why does JavaScript not go away? Because it's everywhere. 
Because it's everywhere. Yeah. It's, well, it's not that it's everywhere. Um, there, honestly, you could replace JavaScript uh, with Ruby or Python mm-hmm. to some degree. Other yeah. dynamic languages. Right. Other dynamic languages. The thing that's really impressed me about Node time and time again is the quality of the open source packaging available, mm-hmm. the yeah. experience, Node version manager in VM. Um, that's the way to get started. Very easy. You can have multiple versions of Node installed on your system and switch between them in the consoles. It's like without thinking about it. Mm. Other languages don't do it that well. The, the Node package manager is amazing, right? Anytime I'm sitting down and I'm getting ready to write some new solution using Node, um, I'll spend some time in the package manager just looking at what packages people have written to address certain classes of problems. Mm. And because There's a couple of things that the Node community has done, and and I'm not exactly sure that they don't necessarily translate to others' communities as well, but they definitely nailed it. Uh, Ryan is constantly hammering the whole um, async, non-blocking I.O. So everybody writes their libraries that way. Yeah. For the most part. Right. And so that idiom is just reinforced continuously with the language, and because JavaScript is very lightweight, it doesn't, Mm -hmm. you don't have to like, meditate for three hours and figure out what your interfaces and types are going to be. You just write the solution, pull in the packages that you need, and you're good to go. I mean, I've literally sat down and solved problems that I spent weeks on in C-sharp and hours in in Hmm. Node. Hmm. Now, the trick is there's limitations in Node. I mean, you you hear about that side of it all the time. It's only going to use one processor, Mm, right period mm-hmm. that's it it doesn't you put it on a 64 core server and it's like mm, i know about how to use one this one cord right so there the reason why i bring up erlang a lot is because it's it's very different it solves a different set of problems again c sharp does the business application thing really well mm-hmm. erlang and node are not how you are going to um write native mobile applications for right. example and that stuff matters more and more business users want that and so you need to be able to say comprehensively, at least in your head, this is how we're going to address these areas of the full system, right? User interface on down to the server. Right. Now, I did what you did in your head when you, you know, somebody said, uh, you know, that uh, you tried to rewrite what's what you had already known how to do in a new language. When you said Erlang is really good at pattern matching in my head, I'm like, okay, well, you know, but we got regular expressions. Right. So, you know, and you're laughing at me. Right. But this is what, you know, probably a few of us went there, you know, sure. because we, and then and now, of course, it's a question, you know, mm-hmm. what's the difference? Where, where's sure. the parallel? And so the, the tricky thing is in Erlang's pattern matching, it, it's nothing like regular expressions. Uh, Erlang still has regular expressions. The, the way you're pattern matching is you're, you're pattern matching on the structure of the data. Because hmm. Erlang is not a statically typed language. So you just have data coming in, and you can have all these different function overloads, and each one of them is going to execute when the data looks like this. Wow. Wow. It's, okay, no, you, you just you you just you just yeah. sold me. Yeah, you start seeing applications of it, and it blows your mind. Uh, Joe Armstrong's book on, on Erlang, I think it's by the fourth or fifth chapter. He's writing an MP4 server. Yeah. He's showing how you can use the pattern matching at a binary level to wow. match packets, right, and execute a different function based on what's... Okay, now that's just huge because, you know, I've done a lot of sockets programming, and the big problem there is there's no protocol whatsoever. You have to 
define when data starts, when it ends, you know, where are the boundaries of that data? And, you know, not only do you have to do that, but pattern matching is just like so far up the stack from, from what you're actually doing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's amazing to me mm-hmm. that it can do that. And now, you know, and I get why the phone company uses Erlang for all their packet switching. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it that way. Sure. Yeah. It's clearly a strength. Huge. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. Guess what time it is. Must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Everybody here's a member, right? Yeah! Yeah, some of you. Well, anyway, <laughs> .NET Rocks fan club has thousands of members, and you too can be a member and win stuff. Uh, today's winner is Gary Joins. Gary Joins, welcome. Welcome, welcome to the winner's circle. No golf clap for him. No Real golf clap. clap for Gary. And if you want to get in on this, go to .nerox.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff button. And, and uh, every year in December, we're going to put together a package worth $5,000 of cool gadgets for one lucky winner on the fan club. Absolutely. So we'd like to ask Alex, um, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would it be? What would you get? Uh, Heroku subscription. Yeah. I, would, I, would, I would buy heck out of some Heroku and some Heroku time. features. Yeah. yeah. yeah you I just would. want to do some big computing, do you? I, yeah. Yeah. I just like to play with stuff. Yeah. Crush a bunch of data. It would yeah. just be Heroku. You wouldn't get a little app harbor, maybe some Azure and you know, do. play them off each other. I, I actually need to look, take another look at Azure since they've changed some things mm-hmm. about it and added mm-hmm. Node. I'd love to see them add Erlang support. Mm-hmm. Erlang support and Azure. Intent, Microsoft. Yeah. Mr. Guthrie, we're just asking. <laughs> so, I, you know, it may already be. In so, the does works. Erlang not run on Windows? It does. It actually does. And that's the thing that, that was a nice surprise for me is Node doesn't, or at least initially, didn't run on Windows at all. Mm-hmm. They had to do a lot of work. Microsoft pitched in big yeah. uh, to help them there. Um, Erlang's, as far as I know, is, is always run on. So, you could run it in a VM, but that's where your limit is. Sure. And yeah, Azure. It, it, it runs. Really nicely on Windows. Um, yep. Yeah. But okay. you, I, mean, I remember you talking about this on the previous show. It's, it's almost like it has its whole own operating system. The, the Erlang runtime system is technically an operating system, mm-hmm. right? In that you could run it bare metal. Right. And I, I did, <laughs> I did some Google magic after that conversation. I was like, I wonder if I just told a lie to all their listeners. <laughs> and and it, as it turns out, yes, you can you can run it bare metal. Wow. Wow. So literally just. Machine, nothing installed, fire up the Erlang runtime and let it run. You can boot to Erlang, is that what you're mm-hmm. saying? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and the interesting thing is when you type Erl in the console, right, that brings mm-hmm. up the runtime, um, you're in the runtime system, right? So you, you're loading modules, you can compile things. Uh, one of the things I love about Erlang is it hot loads code. It just mm-hmm. does it, mm-hmm. right? And you can actually deploy code to different connected nodes um, from inside the console. So is it an interpreted language then? Is it or compiled on the fly or a little of both or how? Uh, it is it is compiled, right? The Beam compiler, I think, is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it it is compiled. So you would actually compile the code and then it would hot load the module. Oh, I see. Yeah, the compiled module into the runtime. So we're we really talking about using all the three of these languages as C sharp, Node, Erlang, Set mm. as a as, and then connecting together with something like RabbitMQ or ZeroMQ. 
So each of those pieces has a, a ability to read messages off those cues. Mm-hmm. So you've sort of seen the C sharp piece more on the front end, or maybe hosting you know part of an ASP.NET page. Sure. And then that feeds back. I think you know it, it boils down to what's appropriate. I'll mm-hmm. give you just an example. Yeah, please. From, from from my background, is, you know, we we had. I have to be careful. We had this really interesting scenario where we inherited a third-party system that we were supporting. Um, it had been built brand new, and it was handling things like payroll mm-hmm. yeah. and had not managed the tax calculations correctly. Oh, uh, ee. So, yeah, the customer came to us and said, it'd be really swell if you'd reverse engineer um, all of the payroll calculations and figure out what localities and states people should have been taxed in and what the correct is. <laughs> As it turns out, when you don't save all the variables to an equation, it's really hard to figure that out. Um, you end up with multiple possibilities. Um, so the the other trick to this is this was discovered sort of close to tax season, and um, hmm. we had limited time. We didn't have a massive team. And the the solution that we arrived at when we ran it like, you know, as this monolithic service or set of services, because there was so much work, so much crunching to do, so much data access, um, you know, it would take, I think it was something like 8 to 11 hours to do a single run. Right. The problem is, is as we are, as far as we know, like trailblazing this solution and trying to figure out the math on it. I mean, nobody had the answers really, but we kind of knew when we didn't get to the right place. Right. After 11 hours, <laughs> we needed to figure out a way to make this thing run fast enough. Mm. And so that's when we started pulling in Rabbit and some other things. But as an example of when you know you need to use .NET, we had to use a, uh, a specific library that could do um, reverse tax rate lookups based on zip codes. Mm. We didn't want to put that data. Right? And there's all these little nuances and rules. And so it's like, well... We don't have time to go say, wouldn't this be cool if it were an Erlang and it used pattern matching? Maybe, mm. but does it make sense to break off and do that when we're already time right. crunched? No, yeah, right. use what's there. You had a runnable solution in .NET. Yeah. And, and, the, and the cool thing is, is because we wrote this as we broke this up into multiple different services, we could run multiple instances of these services across. I mean, it got a little ridiculous. We would basically ask the developers to run service instances on their laptops when they were stepping <laughs> away. Right? It was basically a way to do distributed computing and just up the compute power without right. having to buy new servers or anything. Yeah. Right. Harnessing so, developer laptops on demand. That's right. <laughs> and so the, the cool thing was is we, we got the um, cycle time down to around, I think it was three hours or so, mm-hmm. so that we could do way more cycles and then constantly evaluate, okay, are we getting closer? Are we getting further away from it? Hmm. You know, and, um, you know, there was a, a mostly happy ending to the story. And I, a largely because we were able to break things apart into those services and have them communicate with one another on these message. Buses. Awesome. Yeah. You, you were telling me you had seen um, pages or hundreds of lines of JavaScript condensed into a couple of lines of Erlang. I think that's what you said. I, I have seen, uh, specifically, I've seen C-sharp code go from hundreds of lines to a couple yeah. in Erlang, be- largely because of the pattern matching, yeah. right? There's there's some very terse idioms in, in Erlang. One is called a list comprehension, and it would take, um, you know, it, you 
you basically have a generator, you have a pattern match, and then you have what you're going to do with the things coming out of this generator that's producing elements that are matched. Hmm. So it it takes, you know, like several lines of C-sharp code and then makes it into a one-liner. And then because Jeez. the pattern matching can become a part of that even, it's just, it's crazy. When you see somebody who knows how to use the idiom well, right? Um, using that in production, it's kind of like... it. The first time I saw it, I was just like, I'm not smart enough to do this. <laughs> and so you just, you know, you have to kind of get accustomed to that initial fear that you're always going to run into, or at least that I always run into when you're looking at something that's so different. Because Erlang's functional on yeah, top of everything right. else. It's, it's a prologue syntax. A lot of people see the syntax and they go, that's the butt ugliest language I've ever seen. <laughs> Until you get used to it, it's completely different from JavaScript or C Sharp, mm-hmm. right? And so you, it's just one of those things that you, you know. I take a look at it. And you're like, nah, I'm gonna. Did you? My C sharp. Did you ever there. run into? You must run into these situations where the language seems like the perfect fit, but its services or the tools that it supports doesn't let it sit at that layer. Like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe Erlang's good at at uh, pattern matching, so it must be sort of up front where the data stream comes in in order to do that. Um, sure. But is it really well suited enough to to handle those I, kinds of things? I would say that I I wouldn't want Erlang talking to SQL yeah. server, right? right? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Feels yucky to me. I, I just it feels like it'd be a lot of extra work. Um, actually, Erlang stinks at processing data when it's contained in strings. Yeah, hmm. right. It's it's pretty. It gets gross fast. Right. You need right? a binary data stream. Yeah. Uh, well. Yeah. It, either binary or if you're dealing with complex data structures right. that are string values and you're not having to really peek into the strings and see what they are. You're not parsing. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Then you're fine. Yeah. It, it's when you get into... a lot of difference between parsing and pattern matching. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, there are limitations to what the pattern matching can do. Right. Right. And, and you know, Erlang is weird about strings. It, by default, it stores them as doubly linked lists, I think, or something crazy like that. So it's okay. Yeah, doubly weird about strings. Get into the weirdness. Yeah, you know, it's like you, there's. I was just telling you the cool parts of the language, and then I throw that at you, like, oh, oh. So apparently, there's some dragons in that language. Yeah, yeah, there are. There absolutely are. And I, I think there are dragons in every language, mm-hmm. right? Because the thing is, you could jump into Node. And start writing code, and if you know JavaScript well enough and you've seen some demos, you build things, and it's like, hey, this is cool, and things will seem fine. But if you accidentally <laughs> make it so that it's blocking the event loop, other stuff doesn't happen right, yeah, until right. that code is done. So you have to really change your mindset. Everything is, has to be asynchronous. Right? right. So you lots of callbacks and everything. And there's strategies for doing that well. But usually what I see most commonly is people jump into Node and they're all excited. And then they do like the Pyramid of Doom, nested callback structures, because they, they're not used to writing code that way. And they don't right. realize that could actually be refactored as a separate thing and you just reference yeah, the yeah. function point. Right. But, you know, it's, it's figuring out what those idioms are, sure. what the good patterns and practices you are. You also mentioned uh, it's really a mistake to ignore what the community is saying about these particular yes. languages. Yes. And especially when you're a newcomer to that community, you know, first of all, knowing where to look is a good thing, talking to people who are in it. But, um, you know, finding out what their issues are and figuring out what their triumphs are is a really good, good uh, indicator as to what you should be using it for. It's also good to know sort of where their mindset is and what kind of problems they're solving. Because if you're looking at a language and you're interested, but they don't solve the problems you need to solve with it and their mindset's radically different from mm-hmm. yours, 
maybe steer around that. Yeah. It's not going to necessarily be productive for you and you Mm. can't change a whole community. Sure. It strikes me it's not in your best interest to actually push against the edges of a language. Sure. You want to find something that falls smack dab in the middle of the ballywick of that language for each yeah. one of these things. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, and that's really what I'm trying to encourage people to do. And, and a lot of it comes from just struggling so much, right? Because I kept pushing against the edges of .NET and getting very frustrated and, mm-hmm. and tracking down the experts, you know, and like asking them questions after their presentations. They're just looking at me like... I've never done that. And yeah. You're crazy. Yeah. Right. So hey, the correct answer is don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But usually people are so nice. They won't tell you that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, let me tell you, if we go back to the speakers on Jack, you should have seen this guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <that's laughs> Holy cow. He's headed down the path of doom. I just want to follow him to see when he bursts into flames. <laughs> yeah. That was me a lot. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so like branching out and trying these other things and finding success and mixing and matching. It, that's why I, love talking about this is mm-hmm. because it can be very freeing if you're finding yourself in that sort of scenario over and over again. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and Plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Well, I know there's a bunch of people that wanted to ask you questions that we had to run into the show. So let me open up the floor. Does anybody have a question for Alex? So, Alex, uh, there's been a lot of uh, traction on single-page architectures, SPAs. What's your thoughts on SPAs and Node and some of the other languages? I think there are still a lot of challenges left to be solved for SPAs, personally. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, uh, and, and this is something that append to does quite a bit. Uh, we actually just finished a uh, responsive redesign for time.com right in time for elections and that was really exciting it's not a single page app per se but you start to see where all the really difficult challenges come into play when you have to think about mobile right right? because mobile devices could be on 3g or 4g the user the customer doesn't care yeah what the connection is they don't want the page to tell them you're on a slow connection they just want it to work well right and single page applications have even more challenges because you have to load every resource you load that you can up. ever potentially need to some degree up front so that it's available or you have to consider how am i going to um just in time load specific resources into the page and also make sure that i'm not doing it repeatedly right that's another pitfall. It's like you're loading stuff all the time. You're using up somebody's maybe limited bandwidth. Like mm-hmm. if they're on Verizon, you're you're killing them with your single page application. Also, memory. Like a lot these phones don't have that much space. Sure. It's not that hard to build a web page, but especially when you're making you're doing the SPA thing and you're reloading pieces of the page. Like they'll get big. Mm-hmm. I've seen runaway uh, browser sections on a desktop machine where there was better part of a gig of memory consumed by that process. Mm-hmm. And so, if you did that on the phone, it'd be done. I'll, I'll say that Node 
um, has some really nice tooling to help address some of those challenges, but they're not all solved yet. Um, I think there's a project for for .NET called Cassette that does some nice things like minification and gzipping mm-hmm. and and you know script concatenation. Again, starting to solve some of those same challenges. But you really have to figure out how, you know, when you're thinking of single-page applications, at least for me, it's so easy for me to think browser, desktop browser. Right. They're on a desktop browser. They're on their, you know, they're on their home internet connection. It's fine. It's like, yeah, it's Lots of memory, really lots though. of bandwidth, yeah. lots of screen space. Everything's fine. Yeah. All right, we have another question. Alex, you mentioned earlier uh, something about positive architectural patterns, and that was not very clear, so... What could be good examples of positive architectural patterns versus negative architectural patterns? <laughs> uh, well, anybody who's ever worked with me can tell you that I love to harp on single responsibility principle, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like part of the. If you've, are you ever heard of solid, solid principles, right? Mm, sure, um, part of the software craftsmanship. That's there you go. Yep. Bob Martin and all those good guys. Yep, those are those are great examples. Single responsibility principle is interesting though because it, it branches out beyond just thinking about classes. Right. right. You can use, you can reapply that over and over again. You'll hear people in the node community talk about doing things the Unix way. Really what they mean is single responsibility principle, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Write a library, write a service, write a component of, of your system that is responsible for one thing and one thing only. Um, it, it kind of ties in. It's really interesting. Your, your talk about DevOps, a lot of the goals, uh, that that movement has mm-hmm. dovetail nicely with well-partitioned systems. Absolutely. Right? It's very easy, actually, to ship a single component multiple times and not have system outage. If you're using a a message queuing system with a broker, it gets even easier because the service going down and coming back up again with new code and picking up those messages waiting for it, if you do it right, you can even isolate which service instances you're you're going to try it out. And yeah, kind of like right. It's all transparent to you, right? Yeah. eBay's been doing this for a long time, apparently, right? Um, well, the whole queuing architectural pattern is about creating these barriers of areas of abstraction where many different sources could be pushing onto that queue, and many different sources can be pulling from it, and anything can come and go. You don't need to know; it just right. works. Yep. So, so look into messaging patterns. The the the, the book I mentioned earlier, uh, enterprise integrations patterns. It's Addison Wesley, Gregor Hope. Um, that that's a great way to get your head around a lot of messaging patterns that can really help with this style of architecture. Mm. If you're familiar with CQRS, uh, command query responsibility separation, mm-hmm. or segregation, segregation. Thank yep. you. Um, as an architectural pattern that's very powerful, not just because you start looking at, again, how to do service-oriented architecture better, but you also realize that all the data doesn't have to live in one data store and even more powerful in one type of data store. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't have to sell your boss on going to Datomic and not using SQL Server anymore. Right, right. What you go to your boss with is SQL Server doesn't do this thing well, but Datomic or Couch or Reoc or... Redis does do this thing well, introduce this into the system. So what we've done in the past um, is use SQL Server as the final resting place for data, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to happen in band. Right? right? When the customer sure. is actually interacting with the system is not when I want to be writing to my SQL Server yeah. store. It's when I'm going to write to something that's very quick at just making a log entry and moving on. 
right? Yeah. But you can use that messaging. Uh, the, there are messaging patterns that would allow you to make sure that multiple services receive the same event and respond to it appropriately. Yeah. So you get into that messaging pattern for this fast client says, all right, store this stuff, hits a queue. One part of that pumps it off to um, a non-relational NoSQL store, Mongo, Raven, any of those things. So boom, it's dropped, it's safe, you know it's fine. And you have a separate uh, pick of that same uh, message that now decomposes into SQL Server, which takes a while. But that's where your reporting tools live. That's where your analysis lives. And and it's another thing to to bring up really quickly is that there's sort of an architectural pattern on the client side called task-based, I think. And it dovetails nicely with CQRS. And uh, the the my favorite example that was given to me of this is Amazon. When you buy something on Amazon, when they say okay, it doesn't mean that the things in the box on the truck. It doesn't even mean your, your credit card right. mm-hmm. uh, has been charged yet. It just means okay, we got the request, and we're going to take care of stuff, and we'll email you. Right. Right. Yeah. So it, it's funny. We tend to fall into the trap. I will say .NET developers this is a blanket statement. Forgive me if it doesn't apply to you. We tend to fall into the trap of feeling like we have to do everything before we tell the user anything. Okay. Mm. Right? Yeah. And we don't. People get asynchronous stuff. Like when I walk into a Starbucks and ask for a coffee, mm. as soon as I hand my money over, I'm not instantly screaming at the cashier like, why isn't the coffee? Where's my coffee? Right. I get that there's a whole process that's going on behind the scenes. Right. And I think you're seeing more and more e-commerce sites that are getting good at that, right? Yes. That immediate yes. acknowledgement when you submit the order. Hey, we got your order. Thanks very much. We're working on this. And then sometimes yep. later, it's like, hey, we've, we've found the stuff. We've got it. It's off to, to picking. And then it's, it's been packaged. It's being shipped. Your credit card's been billed. Mm-hmm. Like, you get that chain. And oddly, you feel good about it. Like, yeah. it's a good chain. Right. I do. Yeah. yeah. I love it. And I never thought about it before. That was the thing. I, mm. I went back to a particular... <laughs> A particularly demanding customer, and 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 use that example, and then it, like I could just see the light bulb click, right? Because right. they were they're upset that it was taking so long for us to do all these things, and then provide a response to the user. And I'm like, hmm. that's a lot of stuff that we're doing. Couldn't we just give them an acknowledgement and then communicate asynchronously, either through the user interface or through email or mm-hmm. something else? Mm-hmm. And they didn't like it initially, but when you start pointing them to all the examples of this in our world today. Right. And people like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Kind of makes sense. I like those things. Yeah. Well, people, I know that we're anxious to, to get out of here because uh, it's been about an hour, but I would like to ask you one more time to give Alex Robson a great big round of applause. And thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. 
online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a time boy Life is hard